Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be another installment, another part of the series of the Turkey Callers of America Facebook group. Uh, 11,000 plus members. It's going to be another uh, part of the series with uh, Chris Parrish, who is a Grand National Champion. He's basically won every turkey calling contest there is. Uh, one of the greatest of all times, uh, turkey callers. And uh, you're going to get to hear him for a little over an hour answer questions on Facebook, demonstrating calls and talking about setup and talking about all sorts of stuff with turkey calling and turkey hunting. And it's just an unbelievable opportunity. I want to encourage you guys, if you're turkey hunters, uh, whether you've been hunting a long time or whether you're uh, just starting to uh, get on Facebook and go to Turkey Callers of America and join that Facebook group. Uh, it was started by Scott Ellis out of Florida, who's also a turkey calling champion. And uh, uh, they've been kind enough to let me use the audio. Uh, Scott gave me permission to use the audio uh, and be able to feature some of the greatest callers of all time, uh, both old and new, uh, some of the new up-and-comers and uh, some of the what I would call old-timers, and I say that with every bit of uh, utmost respect. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you guys are going to enjoy this. Uh, also, I uh, want to bring you up to speed. Uh, the Desert Christian Archers uh, is having a, uh, a spring turkey uh, hunting seminar. Dar Colburn and I did the seminar last year in partnership with the NWTF. Um, and the Desert Christian Archers. That is going to be on March 21st uh, at Calvary Church down off I-17. And uh, it's down there right kind of between Cactus and Thunderbird, I believe. Um, but uh, yeah, we're March 21st. Uh, I don't know the time yet. I think it's probably roughly around 6 o'clock. Uh, but uh, they, they are also doing a Gould Turkey Hunt raffle uh, Dar, Dar Colburn, my partner Dar Colburn and myself uh, with Colburn and Scott Outfitters and uh, GouldsTurkeyHunt.com uh, have uh, partnered with Desert Christian Archers to do a Goulds Turkey Hunt raffle. So for $10, uh, this is for a 2018 hunt with uh, Dar and I uh, down in Sonora, Mexico. And if you want more information about our hunts, you can go to Goulds turkeyhunt.com that's g-o-u-l-d-s goulds turkeyhunt.com or colburn and scott outfitters.com but uh, to purchase your ten dollar raffle tickets you can go to desert christian archers.org o-r-g forward slash raffles forward slash turkey hunt Uh, and for ten dollars you can buy a raffle ticket and they are going to be drawing uh, the owner, or excuse me, the winner uh, of that hunt, uh, March 21st. So about a month away uh, here in Phoenix, Arizona. Love to have you guys attend, and that's uh, always a great time. We're going to have a question and answer session. Uh, Dar and I are going to uh, talk a little bit, and we're going to also show a bunch of video and a bunch of photos. And um, but we're going to have a question and answering session. So um, bring your questions. And um, we will try and answer them the best we can. Um, also, uh, going to try and figure out a way to um, uh, bring that to you on the podcast as well. So, uh, yeah, go to, go to uh, Desert Christian Archers, uh, dot org. Uh, 
forward slash raffles forward slash turkey hunt and get your $10 raffle tickets. Uh, I want to thank Desert Christian Archers and the National Wild Turkey Federation for allowing us to uh, put on that seminar. Uh, Guys, uh, you're really going to enjoy this episode. I got a lot of feedback from the prior episode where I had uh, Billy Yargis answering questions uh, on this uh, Turkey Callers of America Facebook uh, page. And I've got a bunch more uh, great uh, callers uh, coming, so just uh, stay tuned. I want to thank each and every one of you for your support uh, of this podcast. Uh, just uh, overwhelmed every day by the emails and the Facebook messages and the direct messages on Instagram from you guys, the supporters, the listeners. Uh, just have a huge loyal uh, following, and I just want to thank you for that. And uh, we're approaching, getting pretty close here to uh, the two-year anniversary of the J. Scott Outdoors podcast, and. Uh, We've, uh, we've bounced over 4 million downloads uh, for the two years. We're not quite at the two-year mark yet, but uh, uh, just uh, last month was my highest uh, month of downloads. And I just want to thank each and every one of you for your support. want to encourage you, too, um, if you love the podcast, uh, please tell your friends about it. And uh, also, if you would, uh, you know, go on iTunes and um, give me a rating. Uh, give me some positive comments. Uh, give me some feedback and I uh, really appreciate that. It helps our placement on iTunes. If you want to send me an email, you can. Uh, I'd love getting the emails. Uh, it's, I, I just I love answering questions and trying to help anybody out. So jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can also follow along on Instagram at jscottoutdoors and my business Facebook page, jscottoutdoors on Facebook. Uh, guys, let's uh, uh, also give a shout out to my sponsors, Go Hunt Insider. Uh, you get a if you use the J Scott promo code when signing up for the Go Hunt Insider, you get a fifty dollar Kuyu gift card automatically. Uh, Go Hunt Insider is the best resource for Western states hunting, uh, whether it's draw odds, harvest statistics, uh, you name it, uh, strategy draw articles. Um, it's a, it's an incredible resource, and new things are being brought online uh, at Go Hunt Insider uh, every day. And Lorenzo and his team there, uh, Chris Porter, Brady Miller, uh, their team just does a phenomenal job. There's some real exciting stuff that can't really announce yet, but uh, some some incredible stuff coming. So uh, go ahead and give them some love, and uh, do yourself a favor and and uh, get become a part of uh, the Go Hunt Insider. Uh, also phonescope.com. If you use the J Scott 16 promo code, uh, Cheston Davis and his crew out of Beaver, Utah do a phenomenal job of taking any spotting scope, any binocular and mounting any cell phone, uh, to that optic and taking great photos and video. I just did a podcast episode with Cheston Davis about the, uh, new iPhone seven plus and uh, that gave him a little bit of a run for his money on trying to, to get the right adapter and, and, and get everything working for the 7 Plus, but they've got it all figured out. And uh, he's also in Walmart. Uh, so there's 3,600 stores, I believe, across the country. And he's in PhoneScope, is in Walmart. But uh, if you use the J Scott promo code when you go to phonescope.com, uh, you're going to get a, it's J Scott 16, excuse me, if you use that promo code you're going to get a 10% discount. Also, Outdoorsman's, the Optics Authority, Cody Nelson and his group at the Outdoorsman's there in Phoenix, 
they are the optics authority. Any Anything you want to know about optics, anything you want to buy, uh, call them. They are experts uh, with anything glassing, anything optics. Uh, have great hunting gear there also. Use the J. Scott promo code. You get a 10% discount there with Cody and his crew at the Outdoorsman's. Uh, guys, uh, I, I want to just uh, thank uh, Facebook, uh, Turkey Callers of America Facebook group, uh, Scott Ellis, uh, for letting me feature uh, this great audio. And there's going to be some uh, other great um, turkey callers coming. So I'm headed to the National Wild Turkey Federation uh, convention in Nashville. If you're going to be there, send me an Instagram message or an email. I've already got a, a bunch of uh, followers uh, and listeners of the J. Scott Outdoors podcast that I'm going to be meeting with. Uh, love to shake a hand, love to say hi, uh, swap a few turkey hunting stories. Uh, so look me up. I'll be right there at the Opryland Hotel uh, at the convention. I want to wish all my uh, compadres that are headed up to Salt Lake City uh, in Utah uh, at the uh, Western Hunting Expo and convention there. Uh, I'm sorry I'm going to miss it. I was up there last year and had a great time, and I uh, can't wait to see how it goes up there. Make sure you go by uh, and see uh, Go Hunt. Uh, the guys at Go Hunt will be there. Uh, the guys at PhoneScope will be there. The guys at the Outdoorsman's will be there, as well as uh, the guys at Kuyu. Um, go by and see Jason and Brendan and, and the guys at Kuyu and um, uh, say hi. And uh, let's just get right to this episode. And uh, guys, have a good weekend. Started in 1983, called in my first calling competition in 1983, which was the, I believe was the Mark Twain Open, in fact. That's where I met um, Walter Parrott. I met Jeff Probst. I met Steve Stoltz. Um, And the list goes on. I can't even remember who all I met there. But uh, I called in a youth division back then. Believe it or not, I know I look like I'm 20 still. But uh, I ended up winning the youth division. And at that point, um, I kind of got hooked on it and started calling a lot. And nevertheless, it just led into more and more and more. And I've got where I rented videos. I watched Denny Galvis's stuff. I watched Walter on stage. I watched Paul on stage. Jeff Probst watched Steve on stage. I watched all these guys and just started picking up different things. Called with Mark Drury. Just so many guys that I got to come up through the ranks with. And I share this before we go on to more questions. And I'm going to have Steve kind of ask me a little bit of, or answer uh, some questions for me. Not answer, but uh, fill me in on some questions. One of the greatest things that I look back on was being able to call and compete with Dick Kirby. You know, Dick's gone now, and what a shame it is, but I remember calling against him for years and calling against him in the Grand National Champion of Champions, and Dick pioneered so much of what we have done today, and uh, a lot of memories there. A lot of memories with Walter, uh, traveling with Walter, calling with Walter, just fantastic times, and uh, I guess I decided one day that uh, I'd taken enough rear end kickings from all these greats coming up the ladder. <laughs> I wanted to back out and concentrate on family and, and doing other things. So that's kind of a little background. I've been doing it a long time. Uh, I had been calling, I guess, what, almost 
30 some odd years, so it's been been a long road. All right, let's look at some more questions. Let me get these glasses on. Um, I'm getting old now. Someone asked earlier about um, asked about cutting. About cutting, Can I yes. Make my cutting more sharper. Cutting is a call that obviously it's it's sharp hard clucks. I run a kind of a medium latex and I like to run prophylactic underneath it and the reason why is is because that brings the pitch up just a little bit of your call and that bringing the pitch up automatically sharpens the sound of that cut so what no matter what the cut is in the call everybody runs a cut that maybe I like a bat wing I like a combo style cut the preacher call that I runs a combo style cut but I like to put backer reads that are prophylactic, and that increases the pitch of the call automatically. I'll, I'll do a little bit of it here. Very demanding call. I'm surprised that actually came out with no mistakes, but that's how I get the sharpness in my cuts. Anything else here, Steve? Uh, I'm, see. I'm slow. I'm scrolling down. I'd I got... like to hear sharp. Uh, I'd like to hear on sharper cuts, multiple cuts. So just expound real quick on how you're um, making the call recover so quick. That comes with tons and tons and tons of practice. Um, probably because I talk fast, I can probably run the call a little faster. But just practicing double notes. You hear a hen cutting, most of the time she's kind of what I call tick-tock cutting. So she's buck, 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 buck. I learned to just increase that and make it faster and put that in two and three and maybe four sequence cuts. So... So I'm kind of tick-tocking, but I'm also putting three or four of them together, which kind of makes it sound like it's a little bit faster. Bill Weaver wants to know, how much do you call, or lack thereof calling, do you do when you're out in the turkey woods? <clears throat> That's an excellent question, because I think the one thing that most people do when they become very, very comfortable with their calls is they tend to call a little more and a little aggressive in certain situations. I have learned over the years that calling less frequent and trying to be as realistic and as pure and clean as I possibly can, and I'm not meaning by making mistakes, but calling like a live turkey, um, seems to be more consistent of calling that turkey in and, and, and being more successful in the woods. Um, I don't call a lot to a turkey. But I also take his temperature, and if that turkey is willing to give me, I'm probably going to call to him because I love to hear him gobble. That's why I'm out there. I love to hear them gobble. And so if they're going to let me call to them, and they're going to gobble, and they're going to keep coming, I'm probably going to keep giving them a little bit. But more often than not, especially these eastern birds, um, I tend to back off my calling and just give them enough to go on and make them come look for me. I hope that answers your question. Alrighty. Uh, let's see here. How about calling a bird across water, say a large creek or river? Michael Kyle. Doesn't happen very often. Um, 
I can remember only a few times that I've actually called a, a bird across the water. Uh, I've called them down to the river's edge and shot them across the river, but very few times have I had them fly over to me. Not that it doesn't happen. Um, I've seen video footage of tur turkeys flying across the Mississippi River. Um, they will fly from here to Alaska if they want to, but if they don't want to, they're not coming. I try to eliminate barriers. That's the biggest thing. Um, a turkey's going to do what he's going to do when he wants to do it, and I think that's probably the, the common knowledge. So if I can eliminate that river, I'm going to eliminate that river from my, from my problem. Hunter Revis wants to know, explain <clears throat> how you do the what I call Yelp cut. Real quick, one behind the other. <laughs> I'll probably say, say his name, Hunter. Hunter. Uh, yeah, Hunter Revis. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I, sometimes I have to use my glasses to be able to see the names here. That's what happens when you get near 50. That was a call that took me some time to do as well, was being able to put that together. And I'm not sure I can do it as well as I used to because I've quit competition calling and I don't call near as much as I used to. But I'll try to do it. And all I'm doing is hitting that quick note and coming back off of it. So I'll do a, a singular of that to try to give you a, a reference point. So, so I'll go right back to the Yelp, but I don't finish it. So that's how I learned to get that note to break over and get back to the Yelp. Now I'll finish it up. I hope that made sense to you, but... Practicing those in singular motion, so to speak, and then learning to put it together is the best way that I learned. Um, I couldn't never put it together like that without practicing doing it singular and then being able to put it together. You get good at one part of it and then practice getting good at the next part of it. Derek Stallman. Hey, Derek. Uh, Derek wants to know, hey, Chris, what do you contribute to getting over that hump of becoming not just an average caller, but a great caller? Great question, Derek. Um, practice and listening to live turkeys and going to contests and listening and watching the guys perform on stage. You know, I was very blessed to have masters of the sport up there that were, in my opinion, still the greats of today. Uh, Walter Parrott, um, Paul Butsky, Denny Galvis. Watching how they put calls together and how they... Uh, work the stage, how they present the call to the judges is very, very critical. Uh, and I think probably things have changed a little bit today, but they haven't changed. There's still a lot of the same stuff going on. Um, I think back in that day, we didn't have time limits. We weren't pressed for time. So calls probably were more natural than they are now sounding, in my opinion, more realistic as far as the rhythms and the way they're put together because we weren't rushed. Uh, not to say that, you know, Matt Van Sice and some of the other guys put calls together, Billy Yargis, fantastically because they've learned to take their time and put it together. But I think feeling rushed has a tendency of, of making us call too fast. Listening to live turkeys. It's great to listen to another caller and say, wow, that guy sounds like a real turkey. But real turkeys will teach you how to call and teach you how to put calls in sequence. And that is the most critical, I mean absolutely the most critical part of your calling, is learning to call in the same sequence in the same manner that real hens do. Whether they're yelping, plain yelping, assembly yelping, 
um, excited yelping, doing it like they do, is in my opinion when I started coming up, you know, going over the hump, and then putting that together in a great program, and practicing that program in the off season, time after time, so you could literally do it with your eyes closed. That's very very critical, you know. And I would practice in front of a mirror and practice in front of a camera. Nowadays, you've got your phone to do that with until I was mistake-free, totally mistake-free. And um, when you can do that consistently on your own, then you can do that consistently up on stage. David Logan says, and folks, you just all heard the best in the business. (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, I appreciate that. I'm a long way from that these days, and I don't know as I ever was, but... uh, I'm just glad to have had my my time on stage and my run on stage, and I was I was very very blessed and fortunate to have won and done what I've done. So it's gotten me to where I'm at today. Who would have thought turkey calling <laughs> of all crazy things? God gave me the talent of turkey calling. Why couldn't He have given me the talent of playing a guitar or something? Golf, golf. Amen to that. Absolutely. Brian Elkins would like to know. <clears throat> How do you feel feel about about, yeah Brian Elkins? How do you feel about decoys? Do they always help or do they hurt you sometimes? You know I'm not eh, the biggest decoy fan in the world. Absolutely, they have their place, and I certainly think that they are phenomenal, especially when you're taking a kid or you're bow hunting, and they're great, especially for those guys that maybe feel a little bit less about their calling and maybe they haven't had a lot of experience in the woods and so they don't know when to move what to move where to go what to do i think decoys definitely have their place um i love to hunt without them because i still love to go in there get on an old oak ridge call to a gobbler and yelp him up on that old oak ridge strutting to me by himself thinking that that's a real hen without any distraction however when i hunt an open field when I hunt an area that uh, I've got multiple gobblers in that are hinned up, a lot of times I'll sneak in there with a gobbler decoy or a multiple of decoys, and that's the trick. So I'm not against using them. Uh, I just don't use them all the time. Um, and I think you need to be real critical about when you use them. Early season, when turkeys are kind of bunched up, they're still vying for that uh, dominance. Definitely the strutting gobbler decoy mixed with maybe a a Jake decoy and some hens, excellent because they're in that dominant mode. They want to figure out who the boss is. They're going to come in there and try to do something. As the season progresses, a lot of times I'll go to just a Jake or a hen or a Jake and a hen, and maybe at the end of the season I might go back out for a, a, a strut and gobbler decoy or just just a hen decoy it all depends on one how good a hatch we've had over the last few years how many jakes we have out there i'll give you this bit of advice using a decoy in the woods especially if it's very thick when you set it up the problem is a lot of times the turkeys don't see it until they get close to it And when they get really close to it and that decoy is in front of them immediately it has a little scare factor to them secondly if you've had a tremendous jake hatch or tremendous hatch, and you've got a lot of jakes. I find sometimes using a jake decoy in that situation is not the best simply because those jakes will oftentimes run a gobbler or two off, and when they do that, that gobbler is shy about coming into that jake. So I kind of weigh those options. None of what I say is 100% because 
turkeys are turkeys, but it's just something over the past 43 years of turkey hunting that I found as a general rule for me works the best. Ken Jones says, what's up, dog? And uh, Ray I joined. Ray I, one of the greats in the industry, and we still have not hunted together, so uh, that's going to have to change real quick. Ken Jones says, what's up, dog? I see uh, Mr. Angie and Carrie Terrell got us a bunch of big beards. Oh, got us a bunch of long beards for us in Georgia this year. Need to come bust some. Definitely will try to make that happen. That would be a blast. I've never killed the Georgia gobbler. I've hunted turkeys in 32 states, but that's one state I haven't hunted. That's probably Carrie Terrell. It is. I'm sure it is. Angie's his wife, by the way. Emily Lauren Oliver. How do you compare the style of calling from back when y'all and my mom called to how we call now? I like that y'all and my mom. Hello, Emily. Um, you know, probably the, the, the way the calls are today compared to what they were back in those days, not that they're much different in some styles of cuts, but back then they were just figuring out the cuts and calls making them raspy. A lot of clear calls were made then, you know, triple reads, double reads, two and a half reads that had no cuts, or they had an inverted V cut or something like that. So the, you know, bat wing style cuts, the combo cuts, cutter, cutter cuts. I know Paul Butsky was one of the first in the business to come out with a cutter cut. Those calls weren't really at their peak of development. And so there wasn't a lot of raspy calling. Um, the style of calling, I think through listening to live turkeys, uh, people like those that I've mentioned, uh, really perfecting the sounds probably has changed as it's progressed. It's like a lot of other things. You look at the bow. We started off with a recurve. A lot of people still hunt with a recurve. I think they're phenomenal. I, I wish I was good enough to hunt with one. But then there came the compound, and then the compound gets better. And every year there's those little minor improvements. Sometimes the improvements in calling aren't necessarily the calls as much as they are the people listening to live turkeys and perfecting those sounds and and being able to put them together when they're on stage and in the woods. You know, we talk a lot about competition calling, but, boy, I tell you what, if you take that kind of calling tone it down a little bit, and you put it in perspective in the woods, anyone that tells me that a good competition caller that's very wood savvy is not dangerous is you've got another thing coming. Because when you put those two combinations together, turkeys got, uh, they need to run and hide. It can be very, 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 very detrimental on turkey population. Shane Hendershot says, hello, Chris. Hope all is well with you, buddy. Hello to Steve as well. Hi, Shane. Shane, good to see you. Saw you uh, live the other night uh, for a little while. Actually, watched it a little bit today. He said, got... "Can you talk a little bit about calling to hens? I've discussed this with folks several times, and would like your take on it." <clears throat> Thanks for your time, buddy. Calling to hens. You know, calling to hens. It can be. To me, it can hurt you, and it can help you. It just depends. I mean. Sometimes you find find hens that are absolutely aggressive and they answer you and they come looking for you. And you find those that are in that mood where they'll answer you a little bit, but they just kind of move off. What I do when I'm trying to 
take the temperature or call to hens that have gobblers with them is I start off very, very soft and, excuse me, I try to take their temperature and figure out what mood they're in. A lot of times you can soft call to a hen or a multiple of hens that have gobblers and have the same reaction as if that hen is aggressive and cutting to you. I may start off with soft yelps, clucks, and purrs. If those hens are answering it and they're answering me soft and they're coming, I'm going to just keep giving that same stuff. If I hit them a little more aggressive and those hens come back aggressive and that keep we keep answering back and forth, I'm going to keep doing the same thing. I think calling to hens is a lot like calling to a gobbler, at least what I've found. Being able to take that temperature and find out the mode of those turkeys, the mood and what they're going to do is is critical and is key to being successful of calling those hens in and bringing that gobbler in when, when they're with the hens. Uh, you know, I try not to get too technical with it because they're just out there being turkeys and sometimes they're going to respond and sometimes they're not and sometimes you're just going to have to change setups and sometimes you're just going to have to find another turkey. I've got a question here by Bill Weaver. I have really difficult time with mouth calls. Only use a slate right now. What call would you recommend me trying to get to use a mouth call? I would recommend a double read. Now, obviously I'm with Night and Hale, but double read call is a fantastic call. They are, in my opinion, much easier to manipulate and use than a single read call, simply because you've got a longer read and a shorter read, and as you apply tongue pressure, the longer read becomes part of the call, and as you drop your tongue pressure off, the lower read does. It kind of automatically gives you that high-low without manipulating the call. Whereas a single read with one read may not require quite as much air pressure, but it takes more manipulation to make that read get to the high-low. So a double read call by far is the, the best call to learn on. Todd Johnson, Todd Johnson wants to know, after the diaphragm call, what's your next favorite type of turkey call? Man, I love all of them, but I'm going to have to say a glass call. Uh... Glass call is absolutely my favorite uh, when it comes to a friction call, and I'm never going to have a turkey vest without it. <clears throat> uh, I like a glass for several reasons. One, I can palm that call and I can get soft on it. I cluck and purr. But I can open that call up and I can get loud and aggressive. I can do anything on that glass call I want to. And I also like it really well because matched with a waterproof striker, that call is pretty much impervious to weather conditions. It's kind of that combination of best of all worlds as a friction call for me. So that's going to be my next favorite call will be a, a glass call as far as turkey hunting. However, I think a box call may have some of the most pure turkey sounds in it that there is and when you learn to run a box call properly uh, I think there's nothing sounds more real than a box call this happens to be a little higher pitch louder box call but the sound is built right in it's very easy you learn to run that rhythm and a box call is hard to beat Richie Miller wants to know if you can borrow the yelp I'm assuming back when you were yelping with your mouth uh, yeah, you can have that all you want to. 
as long as I'm sitting in the tree next to you. And I probably need to be doing the shooting, and he'll understand what that means. Uh, Chris, Chris Walls. <laughs> Love you, Richie. Chris Walls wants to know, can you show the read on your tube call and do some calls? I just joined. Sorry if you have already covered tube calling. <clears throat> I have not covered tube calling, and I do not have a tube call sitting here with me, and I totally apologize for that because that is one of my favorite calls. Um, I can certainly run and get it real quick and come right back. And I'll do that as I get later in the show. If you'll stay on long enough, I will definitely do that for you. I will not forget. And Steve won't let me forget. He's like an elephant. So <laughs> let's see here. Wayne, Wayne Smith. Smith wants to know what area of USA do you really love hunting? Oh my gosh. Are you talking elk, sheep? No, you're talking turkey. I understand. Um, wow, there's so many great states to turkey hunt in. Um, if I had to put my finger on, and I'm from Missouri, and of course Missouri was one of the great states and, and still is a great state, but if I had to put my finger on one state that I truly, truly love is Kansas. Because you get a little bit further west, you can hunt Rio's and some hybrids, you get right up to the east part of it where it kind of joins in with Missouri, and you're hunting easterns, and I love it because there's not a lot of hunting pressure there. And the turkeys love to gobble, and they've got a great turkey population. For some reason, that state and the uh, the management and the habitat just is in is conducive to to a great hatch, seemingly year after year. And they just have a lot of turkeys. And when you have a lot of turkeys to hunt, it makes for some fantastic hunting. So that's my number one state. Hunter Berkeley wants to know: Have you ever got a slam? Yes, I have. I've gotten several slams in my life. I've been very fortunate to do that. Um, and was very fortunate that many of the turkeys that I harvested on those slams were with the NWTF after winning some titles. So uh, I've been very blessed to hunt all over. I've hunted California. I've hunted way up east, uh, you know, Vermont and, and other places. I just I just love hunting different areas and the different culture and the different ways people do it, different terrain. I think that's what makes a very well-rounded turkey hunter is being able to to go to these different places and adapt yourself and be able to call to a multitude of different turkeys in different situations and see how it happens. And you can apply what you've learned in one place to another place, and it just makes you that much better. Hunter Lamone wants to know, Chris, how long before nationals do you start practicing, of course, when you were uh, competing, and what's your favorite cluck and purr call? That's a good, in fact, we've been working on cluck and purr stuff today, so uh, um, Hunter, I'll answer that in two parts. My favorite cluck and purr call is one that <clears throat> I cluck and purr the best on. Now, I run a combo cut. I've run cutter cuts. When I was competition calling a lot, I ran a cutter call to cluck and purr on. A uh, bat wing call I can cluck and purr on. After I learn to cluck and purr well, I can pretty much pick up any call and cluck and purr plenty good enough to kill turkeys with. But in competition, I typically ran a combo style cut and or a cutter style cut to cluck and purr on. And I ran very, very light material so I could get real soft with it. As far as the amount of time I practiced before the Nationals, when I was calling in competition... There wasn't a week that went by all year long that I didn't have a call in my mouth at some point. Um, and I practiced a little bit different probably than a lot of people. Once I got to a certain level, 
I would pick a day and I would practice, say, cutting and cackling and maybe assembly helping. And the next day I would practice tree calls, cluck and purrs, and key keys. And the next day I may practice uh, Jake yelps and Jake gobbles and maybe some combination of calls. And then on the following day I'd run my programs and I'd practice my programs. And that's how I went uh, in sequence to get ready for the Nationals. And I contribute being able to have gotten on stage and I think made very, very, very few mistakes strictly by the way that I actually put my practice together. And as far as cluck and purrs, I've got a call here, I will. This is actually the last call, and I brought this out on purpose because I really run these now. But this is the last cluck and purr call that I actually had in competition, I guess, three years ago. So I'll see if it actually still runs. I broke it loose earlier, and it wasn't bad, but it's not necessarily great. I wish I could have purred that easy in competition. No pressure here today. That's awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Jason, Hunter. Jason Conrad <clears throat> wants to know, what do you contribute the fall and numbers of calling contests to? Oh, Jason, I know we've actually had this conversation a lot, and many of us callers have. And um, I tell you, if I had to put my finger on probably one thing that was a downfall to calling competitions has been – all the instructions that are available on things such as YouTube and 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 the other uh, social media sites, there's so many, so many ways to obtain information on calling and hunting and, and, and different things today by just clicking on your computer. I know when I was coming up through the ranks as a caller, one of the ways that people learned was going to calling competitions. They would corner people like Steve and Walter and, and Paul Butsky and Ray I and those guys, and, they, and not only were they wanting to listen to them call, but they were asking them a million questions about what they were doing to be successful hunters. And today, it's all available. You know, we had videos come out. We have DVDs. Now we've got computers. We've got television shows. Um, and I think a lot of it is, too, that sponsorships – in these particular type of arenas have gotten more into the social media type sponsorships and digital marketing sponsorships as well as TV sponsorships because they get more bang for their buck. There's more viewership there than there is going to a contest. Um, and as much as we found it exciting, there's some things about it that can, can wear on you as well. And um, I think that's kind of what happened to it. And I, I know that's not a solid answer, but it's the only thing I can come up with because uh, so much of it, and a lot of it is people wanting to run them. Let's face it, it takes a lot of time. And I know Steve's here with me, and he can attest to it. It takes a lot of time to put a contest together and get your judges and get everything lined out. And so with that time consumption going on, especially these smaller contests, in order to get qualified, just don't have enough manpower to put them on, and there's, you know, not enough Indians to put them on, and uh, so I think that with that being said, that's the reason why we've had a lot of fall off in contests, and I think it's a shame. I saw Joe Drake the other night mention this, and it's absolutely a shame. We, 
we've seen this go from I got to live the glory days of it to it's a struggle right now uh, for people to even get qualified to go to the nationals, let alone any other contest. I, I you know, the world championships used to be giant. The U.S. Open. I remember the last one, the one before the last one I won was the largest purse in a turkey calling contest, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of sixteen, seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars in one crack there. So, yeah, uh, I wish it would come back. Um, Brad Laney <clears throat> wants to know: Do you call a lot to a gobbler on the limb? Brad, thanks for the question. I do not, and. And I, and I do sometimes, too. So I'll not contradict myself and try to answer this properly. Most of the time, I do not. Because what will happen is that turkey will sit up there and gobble and he'll wait for you. Hen goes to the gobbler in the woods naturally. That's by nature. So we're reversing nature when we call the gobbler in. I know that's probably nothing new to anyone. <clears throat> so I try to let him know where I'm at with some soft tree calls, some very soft stuff. And if I know he responded to me, I will typically shut up and let him make the next move and get on the ground before I start start uh, you know, spitting fire at him a little bit and see what goes on. Now, if he's roosted with hens and those hens are starting to get vocal and I fear that this may go south on me, excuse me, I'll pick up the calling a little bit to hopefully make those hens come to me and maybe drag uh, the gobbler with her or with them. So... You know, I weigh the situation. Every time you set up on a turkey, it's going to be a different situation, and that's kind of how I play my game. And, you know, I don't care how good you are, how many years you have underneath your belt, you're going to go home with your hat in your hand, sometimes more often than you are with a set of spurs in your in your hand. Joe Slayton says, <laughs> You have been a leader in the industry with mouth call designs. What is the biggest design that you came up with or your favorite design. You know, Joe, I <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. And I, I don't know as I was ever a leader uh, in mouth call designs. I, I've cut them up to the point where it looks like the dog got a hold of them and chewed them up. But uh, probably my overall favorite out of all of them is I've got a modified bat wing cut and I've got a combo cut that I like. And the critical part of those two style calls is the centering of everything and the openings of everything. And that, to me, is what makes calls really critical and how they run consistent. Um, so those two type of calls would probably be the two calls that are my always go-to calls and my favorite calls and probably uh, the ones that I prefer to, to work with, if that answers your question. I hope I didn't short you on that. Emily... Oliver wants to know your take on a Jake Yelp, please. Uh, obviously, demonstrate. I'm trying to put, uh, trying to get mine put together. Okay, I got to put on these readers because I cannot see anything anymore. And make sure I get the right call. And I think that's it. So let me get this where it actually will run. You know, Jake Yelp, Gobbler Yelp. I've heard gobblers and jakes alike yelp just like a hen. I've seen big gobblers come to me just like a hen, yelping 90 mile an hour. But obviously, when we think about a jake or a gobbler, we think about a slower rhythm. We think about um, 
a turkey, especially on a Jake, that is, is learning to call. So not everything they do is absolutely perfect. And I like to put it together with, if you can, a little combination of uh, um, a gobble in there if you can, if you're using a mouth call. But just slowing your rhythm down and thinking about a little bit of a, a, a pleading quality. I don't know how many people have heard a, a Jake yelp uh, or calc, if you will, when a, when a, uh, a gobbler drums. Um, sometimes if you think about that and try to put that in sequence, maybe not quite as, uh, as, ra- as harsh, but that's what I think about when I do a, a Jake Yelp. So I'll try to demonstrate a little bit. <clears throat> Always got to use the hands, huh? Something of that nature. A little bit of pleading, a little bit of excitement. Uh, might even throw a little whistle in there where I'm... I like a little rasp, but I like a little highness in the call, too, because the turkeys are trying to learn to call. They're kind of all over the place with their calling. Denny Gullis has joined, to let you know. Uh, hello, Denny. One of the absolute greats, if not, not worthy. if not the greatest, in my opinion. This Ricky Brown wants to know, have you ever, um, I'm sorry, have you ever hunted <clears throat> the western mountains of Virginia, and how challenging do you think they are compared to other states? I've done, I don't even have that on mine. I don't know where I'm at. That's with okay. That. I'm going right in order. So okay, just keep answering. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Repeat that question again because I can't see it on my. Have you ever hunted Western Virginia, the mountains, and how <clears throat> challenging do you think they are compared to other states? I have not hunting hunted Western Virginia, but I have hunted Pennsylvania, New York, Vermont, and a lot of the similar terrain there, <clears throat> and. I find mountains, or high country, what I call it, challenging for several reasons. One, it's a fooler to me a lot of times when a turkey gobbles because there'll be a ridge over, but that sound carries so well up there, oftentimes you're sitting 400 yards from that turkey trying to call to him, and you have really no ideas that far. So learning to judge distance out there was a little bit of a problem with me when I first started hunting them. Secondly... A lot of that timber out there on those ridges is fairly open. And even when the foliage gets out, you can still see a long way. And it's not very permittable for you to move very well on those turkeys. So you really have to drop down and really learn to use the terrain on those turkeys. But the one thing I have found out about calling turkeys in the mountains is oftentimes when they decide to come to you, They'll come from a lot longer distances than, say, they do here in Missouri in some of this flat land and these little small pockets of timber because they're crossing a lot of open country to get there. Uh, I find it very challenging. And, you know, turkeys, turkey hunting anywhere has its challenges for sure, uh, you know, no matter what the terrain is. But I love hunting mountain turkeys for one thing and one thing only. When they get just over that lip, and they're just about in gun range, and they throw that gobble off, and your hat flies up in the air and does a little dance. There's nothing like hunting a turkey in that big hardwoods. I love watching them strut through that hardwoods. Scott Ellis, in your opinion, does realistic calling kill more turkeys, and please explain why. I think that's a sense, yes. Realistic calling helps kill more turkeys. 
take nothing away from woodsmanship. I think woodsmanship is absolutely uh, a necessity without question. Um, and woodsmanship only comes through time in the woods and learning. We can sit here for six hours, and trust me, I haven't eaten yet, so I can't do that. But I'm not going to teach you what you need to know, and no one is, really and truly, unless you're out there experiencing it. So you have to be experiencing it to develop woodsmanship and make mistakes and screw up. But I think if a guy practices his calling and gets comfortable, even if he only learns how to do a little bit of cutting, some good clucking and purring, some soft yelping, some mediocre yelping, and meaning you know some some good yelping, but it's but it's a little louder pitch yelping, and learns how to put those particular calls together like real turkeys do and present them. No matter what your woodsmanship skill, you're going to get response, and as you refine your woodsmanship skills through experience you're going to be more successful. I learned to call really good far better, uh, quicker, than I learned to be a good woodsman. And so I would call turkeys in, but I'd run them off, spook them, do stupid stuff. And then when I learned to be a good woodsman and I put the combination together, I started killing turkeys every year, everywhere I went. I was successful. And the combination is what is the key. You've got to be good at both. But I do think, especially this day and age, when, let's face it, turkey hunting is popular, there's a lot of turkey hunters everywhere and a lot of good callers everywhere, that being a good caller oftentimes can be the difference between calling that turkey in in a certain situation than not calling him in. But I think it's a combination of both. I don't think you have to be a world championship style caller to be a great turkey hunter. You've just got to be comfortable with your calls and comfortable with your woodsmanship skills. Mike Walters uh, complimented your awesome cluck and purr, he said. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Joe Slayton, I always <laughs> thought you had the best cutting sequence when you were competing. Can you demonstrate some of your cutting? All right. I will try to do my best, Joe. <clears throat> Remember, it's been a while. <laughs> Let me see here. I got two of the same calls here. They're really close, but one of them's got a little more depth than the other. Again, I think about a hen cutting. Picture her. When I was calling, period, I tried to picture the sequence that was unfolding in front of me whether they called for cutting or yelping or excited hen yelping, but I'm trying to unfold that sequence in front of me and picture that turkey doing exactly what I'm going to try to do. So I'm going to picture a turkey here walking, coming to me, and then stopping and getting excited, and I'm going to try to put that in in, in a little sequence here. <clears throat> So when you see I speed it up a little bit, of course the call got a fuzz high there, but I'm thinking about that hen kind of pausing and you've called to her and all of a sudden she blasts back at you getting real excited, scolding you and, and continuing to come to you. So, Donnie Williams wants to know, <clears throat> what's your take on extremely warm winter? We're having an 
does that put us at a disadvantage this spring in the turkey woods? That's an excellent question. And uh, hello, it's Johnny, right? Uh, I'm sorry, I passed it. You got to keep up better, Steve. Well, I read, I read the question. <laughs> it's Donnie. Donnie, okay. Williams. Thanks for the question, Donnie. I, you know, that's a boy. I've watched a lot of springs come and go, and obviously, you know, everybody says daylight hours is the biggest key on on the breeding sequence, and and I can't disagree with that because that's scientific. However, warm weather can it, it kind of speeds things up, in my personal opinion, and and I think that there could be a twofold situation here. If we continue to stay warm and we don't have any harsh weather come in, say late February, early March, and really kind of shut things down, uh, we could see an early spring and we could see an early uh, foliage pop. And when that happens, um, things tend to progress a little bit faster. So you could literally have, and and you already do, no matter what, because of our population, we've got a lot more hens than we do gobblers and there's breeding that takes place. I promise you there'll be breeding taking place the last part of March. It always happens. There's going to be hens on the nest when the season uh, uh, opens. Uh, there'll especially be hens on the nest when the season open, opens if we get an early spring and it stays warm. And it will progress things to the point where your first week or so, you'll probably have turkeys absolutely wearing themselves out gobbling trying to find those hens that are already nesting. Second week will be a little bit like that. Oftentimes, when you have that early spring, that third week, you'll see gobblers not necessarily getting back in their bachelor group, but they'll almost gobble each other in. I've seen it multiple times over the 40-some years I've turkey hunted. In that situation, I like to use gobbler calls. Obviously, you're not going to do this where you think there's going to be other hunters, but oftentimes reverting back to that natural want to regroup as a, 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 a flock of gobblers will do as this season ends can be absolutely deadly when you present that in the turkey woods with a season that's progressing like it is. But if we get a hard winter uh, in March where we get some snow, we get some really cold temperatures for a lengthy period of time and it kind of you know, slows the progression down, then we'll probably have a normal spring. It's always going to fall a little funny year after year. That's just kind of the things that happen. It's uh, You just have to learn from their experiences and kind of apply those those learned experiences to your, to your hunting and your calling. And, you know, over the years, that's what I've done to be successful. Scouting is a key no matter what. If you're hunting places you know and you know what the turkeys are doing in certain situations – that's going to be key, absolute key. Tommy Pertel says hello. Hey, Tommy, Perry. long time. Donald, uh, mm-hmm. Don, Donald Gladding, thank you for your time this evening. Absolutely. And it's enjoyable. Um, hello, Mr. Parrish from Steve Sparks. Hello, sir. Uh, Matt McLean says good to see you. Uh, Ricky Higgins says hello, Chris and Steve. I hey, saw Ricky. that, Ricky. Good to see you. I wish. I uh, hope you make it to the Nationals this year. I see Keith Wallingheimer. Wallingheimer. Sounding good, good brother. <laughs> I'm not calling anymore. <laughs> Sam Clements said good stuff, Chris. Good tips. Shane Hendershot here. How do you, How do you feel, feel about, about the scenario format this year for callers in the finals? 
You know, uh, Shane, we've had discussions about this before, and a lot of us have. I, I, I like scenarios, and the reason why I like scenarios is I like the idea of being able to take and put multiple calls together and make it sound like a real... T- you think about scenarios, you think about the team event. And in my opinion, in the team event, you can you can sound like a real turkey and put calls together like a real turkey. Not that you can't do it with any other format. But what it does, I think, it allows the caller to have an open mind about what he can do and what he can present maybe uh, i hate to say ad lib because i don't believe in ad libbing it's adding real turkey sounds but adding stuff in there that is a little bit beyond the normal call which to me adds realism so personally i like the idea behind it and i think it's going to be a lot of fun for you guys i really do uh do i miss it uh I don't miss the nerves drawing numbers. <clears throat> I hated that. I got bad at drawing numbers in the end. Uh, I don't miss the nerves just prior to stepping on stage. I do miss that rush and that high of stepping on stage. I was always able to hold my calm. And I miss the backstage antics among everybody and, and how we all got together and just had a good time. So there's always going to be a part of it I miss, but... Um, I think you guys are going to have a lot of fun with that scenario format. Scott Ellis says, uh, how critical is a top read overhang and read spacing in creating a great sounding mouth call? You know, I think it all comes into play. Absolutely. Um, Some people cannot get rasped without having a, a, a long overhang. Others don't need a long overhang. I never did have to have a long overhang. I think there's a happy medium by which you make the general public happy, and that's the way a common built call has to be built. Um, I think read spacing is can be a very critical as well. Sometimes when the read spacing is a little close, it tends to create a little highness in the call, which uh, sometimes can be carried into that front end, and as you, you put pressure on the call, it drops in. Sometimes with spacing the call a little wider, it'll go quicker into a, a rasp, um, and allow a little more depth into the call. It all is also critical to the individual. Um, I can build a call right now that I can run top-notch, go wash it off with mouthwash, and, and hand it to Steve, and he may not be able to run the call at all. Uh, everybody has a little bit different guarantee uh, I way of being able to run the call. So, uh, But I think it all is critical. In, in building a call that is consistent, for sure. Ricky Higgins says, hey, Chris and Steve. Hey, hey Ricky. How, how you do doing? You, how do you compare stage calling versus in the woods, for example, length of yelping sequence, volume, etc.? See you in a week, he said. Ah, good. He's going to make it. Very good. You know, that question's been asked a million times, and it's still a great question. Uh, and like I said earlier, I think good competition callers that can apply their learned knowledge in the woods are... Uh, man, they're dead on turkeys, absolutely. But I think that oftentimes if you don't listen to live turkeys and think about what they're doing, we as competition callers tend to call too much and elongate our calling too much. Um, You know, when you hear a hen calling, most of the time they don't go a long period of time when they're calling. Now they'll do that when they're excited 
assembly open sometimes in the fall, or you get a flock of turkeys that are calling back and forth to one another, and two flocks are joining, there can be just a multitude of sounds there. But when you think about that spring-type sequence, um, you don't hear a lot of just constant calling. Um, volume, I think, has always been critical. And I think anyone that's known me over the years knows that I never did call with a ton of volume. Um, two reasons why. One, I always blew lighter reeded calls um, because I could control them, and I learned to control them very early on. And two, when you hear a hen calling, you know, to me, when she's 100 yards away, she doesn't sound much different there than she does when she's right in your lap. And she can control her own volume, just like people can. She can call out or she can call soft. But I think there's a volume in by which you can be so loud and so obnoxious that regardless of how good it is, it kind of has a tendency of weighing on the unrealistic side. And so I think keeping that volume to the realistic side and keeping your sequences to the realistic side is, is critical, and I think that's the best way to be real successful in the woods. Ken Jones wants to know, do you think that late-season gobblers gobbling each other in has more to do with them hoping the other guy has a hen uh, than it does with them wanting to uh, group back up? I think you kind of hit on that earlier. I think it's six one half a dozen the other, but uh, uh, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, they know when it's over. Uh, they know when uh, they've gone four, five, six days and and Missy, Jenny, and Joanne are not available anymore. I mean, they, they, they know that. They understand that. They, they, they look around and see them. There may be that straggler that loses a nest that comes back out and, you know, there's a little pocket, what I call pocket breeding, little, little pockets of breeding going on. But for the most part, they know when it's over with. And I think that, one, they know that they're going to be joining back up. And two, they're still a little bit in the mode, so they're still gobbling a little bit. And I think if you just think about how to work those birds with uh, implementing some gobbler calls, along with maybe some light hen calls, you can find yourself in those situations being real successful. But I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, and it's going to be what you see go on on your property. You know, if you've done a good job of scouting or you're real familiar with what's going on in and around the property that you're hunting at that time, you'll be able to know kind of what what their take is on things. Devin Duncan says, thanks for do, <clears throat> taking the time to do this. Absolutely. Shane Henderson says, me too. It's going to be one-man team show. Thanks for your time and answers, buddy. Absolutely, Shane. Andrew Moore. Uh, hey, Andrew. Biggest tip for a young caller getting ready to hop on a stage in a, in week. Grand Nationals one We've time. only been to Grand mm -hmm. Nationals one time. See you. In the music city. Well, you know, it's like Walter Parrott put it to me a long time ago. You've got to get stage time. Uh, the most important thing <clears throat> that I think helped me over the years before going to what I call the big stage was getting plenty of stage time. Being able to go to smaller contests, and I know there's not very many available. And as I started getting later in my years of calling, was about ready to quit calling, um... I, uh, if I found myself traveling further and further trying to find a contest to go to, I know it's Steve and I and several others, Steve Morgenstern and many, we, we jump in a vehicle and drive eight hours to go to a contest that might have paid $300 just to get stage time. 
just to get up on stage and work your calls and kind of work those nerves out. So I recommend you doing that if you can. If you can't, get your dad and your family and whoever to get in, get in front of them and call to them. We used to have little get-togethers here where we'd call to each other and record it and critique each other. And that's critical, too. You're still a little bit nervous. You still have that same kind of uh, feeling as you do when you climb on the stage. Um, those things are really, really qu- critical. And now that you're only a week away, just don't get in your head about it and don't overcall. I see so many people a week from it get in their head and they blow their calls and blow their calls and they start going slightly tone deaf and not hearing really what they're doing and they start wanting to change and make all these great changes when in reality, if you back off of it, <laughs> you you call a little bit today and a little bit tomorrow with different calls. You hear yourself. You're not overdoing it. Your calls still sound the same. Your hearing's still the same. Just don't get into your head about it. And that, to me, is probably the most critical thing is just not getting into your own head about it. Shane Hendershot says, I'm done calling for a bit of as well, might come back in a few years, you never know. We need to do the two-man team. Get in the line, Shane. <laughs> well, Take Shane and I have been talking about this a little bit, but we haven't done it yet. But, but uh, yes, uh, I'd love to do more two-man teaming with, with everyone. I, I, I love that particular contest. It's just hard for me to get the time to do much practicing and, and you know, putting a sequence together. But, uh, you know, maybe... I won't get too old or, or lose a little bit of my touch where I can still get out there and do it in a few years if you're still interested. So, um, yeah, anybody that wants to do some team calling, I'm, I'm willing to step up there and try it one time with whoever wants to try to do it. Devin Duncan, when working a hung-up gobbler and you get the vibe that he is a dominant bird, do you hit him with a gobble? And if so, what sequence would you hit him with if you do decide to gobble him? Well, if I'm working a hung-up turkey, there's going to be a couple reasons why he's hung up. But the main reason is going to be he's probably got hens with him. And oftentimes being patient and waiting that turkey out um, and letting him get done with the hens can be your best case scenario. But if I think that I can break him with um, a gobble call or some jake calls, uh, I'm definitely going to try that. And as far as the sequence, um, what I like to do, and I'll try to do it um, on a mouth call here. I'll break this reed loose. Um, I try to create a little bit of a party, if you will, <clears throat> where I'm sounding like a multiple of birds, including uh, a gobblers or jakes. I may take my tube call and gobble, and I haven't forgot about the tube call. I'm going to run down and get it here in just a little bit. And so when I take that couple-minute break or couple-second break, just forgive me. But um, I try to sound like a multiple of birds, like there's a little party going on. And then I try to create a little bit of a fight where some gobblers have got together, maybe some hens are in there, just a a big party. And I'll, I'll try to put that together. So I'm going to start off with, is some yelping back and forth like a couple different hens, and then all of a sudden a gobble, and then just I'm gonna try to put this scenario together for you. <clears throat> I hope I don't fail. Let me get a drink real quick. It's like being in a contest there. 
Now, <clears throat> I did that kind of fast. We don't have a lot of time, but those kind of things right there oftentimes create a ton of excitement in other turkeys. And if I can get them answering and everybody kind of going with it, I try to put that together. And a lot of times I've had turkeys come to that just because of all that excitement level. You know, it's no different than rattling and grunting to deer. Some days you're a diamond, some days you're a stone. But you've got to give it a try. Uh, Richard Gunn says, good stuff, Chris. What's your favorite subspecies to hunt and why? It's Richard Gunn. Hey, Richard, how are you? Um, my favorite subspecies is definitely an eastern turkey. I love to hear an eastern turkey gobble. Uh, I love all the terrain that they live in. Now, I'm a big game hunter. I love to hunt elk. I'm getting ready to do a sheep hunt. I've been to Alaska and hunted caribou. I love big game hunting. I love mountain hunting. But when it comes to turkeys... I love the old Missouri hardwoods and an eastern gobbler gobbling in those hardwoods, blowing your hat off, or an Alabama swamp where he's coming through that swamp and that big old hollow gobble, and he's coming through there and you're playing that chess match. I just love hunting an eastern turkey. It's what I grew up with, and that's probably never going to go away. I love hunting all of them, but an eastern's my favorite. Brad Laney, what's an example of something <clears throat> you've learned while hunting all the different turkey subspecies? The number one thing I've learned when hunting turkeys, period, is turkeys are turkeys. They have so many days a year to breed. Um, you're going to face different weather conditions. You're going to face turkeys that are hinned up. You're going to face turkeys that are not hinned up. You're going to have times a day when they are at their peak and other times a day when they are tough rascals to do anything with. Um, that's the number one thing that I've learned as far as what can happen with, with different subspecies. The thing that I've learned overall is to always be patient. No matter what goes on, a patient hunter most of the time and being diligent about how he moves and what he does is going to win the war. Um, running and gunning has its place, and it is great and is, it, it is exciting. But if you have small terrain, if you have uh, not very many turkeys to hunt, it can also ruin your hunting. So being patient in all those different situations to me is the key to me being more successful more often than not. Steve Sparks <clears throat> says, I know fire ants and raccoons are atrocious on turkey nests and poults. Which predator, in your opinion, is more detrimental to turkeys, bobcat or coyote? Definitely a bobcat. <clears throat> Coyotes can be... Now, there's been a lot of studies done, and I've talked to a, a lot of people that have a, a lot to do with this. Um, um, a friend of mine, Casey Shootman, is a world-class trapper. Many of you may have watched him do some stuff on his man management advantage thing on the, the Internet. If you haven't, you need to check out his trapping stuff because it's crazy. The guy, I wouldn't want him trying to trap me. Um, but the thing is, coyotes can get to a hen nest and get a hint on the nest. Um, but they don't kill very many adult birds, especially adult gobblers. Coyotes are not really hard, that hard on adult gobblers, not saying they don't catch a few. Bobcats, on the other hand, are absolute killing machines. You know, they're stealthy. They can climb trees. They'll stalk. They'll lay up in trees. I've watched bobcats lay in trees waiting for turkeys to walk by them. Um, I think bobcat is definitely uh, the tougher of the of the two, but they all have to be kept in check. If you're if you're a turkey hunter and a deer hunter and, and, a, and a game manager, 
You have to keep track of your, your predators and keep things in check if you possibly can. Andrew Moore says, put my name on the two-man team list. You too, Steve. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Got one here from uh, Scott Pins- Punswick. If I pronounce your names wrong, guys, please forgive me. Yeah, Punswick, I think that's what it is. Hello, Chris. Much respect for you, and thank you for all you do for us turkey hunters. You are one of the all-time best callers, in my opinion. My question is, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. My question is, could you break down how you use a diaphragm? It says see more. Can you open that up, Steve? Let me see if I can open it. Oh, okay, diaphragm call and what it takes to get... Those awesome yelps and cuts you pose, you possess. Oh boy, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> Scott. The biggest thing is practice. It really is practice. Um, I'll give you a. I don't know why that call keeps wanting to stick. I'll give you one little tip that helped me learn, and I pulled this off from from Denny Galvis. In fact, was learning to incorporate your diaphragm, and your throat into your calling. Now, that doesn't come so much when cutting, but <clears throat> but learning to incorporate that in my calling. Now, I'm going to do two different things here. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to jaw action yelp a little bit, okay, where I really open and close my mouth um, because that's really how I learned to yelp. While that sounds really good, I guess it does. It may not sound really good to you guys. If I incorporate my diaphragm into that and I shorten that down a little bit, take a little bit of jaw action out of it, I can get that nasally tone and that that sound that hens have coming out of them in a natural way. Because if you watch a hen call, her beak's moving and her body's kind of bouncing a little bit. me slow my yelp down a little bit and get that pleading quality to it and that more realistic sound to it by utilizing that. I hope that helps. <clears throat> Andrew Moore, okay, that's right. Put your name on the list. We'll do. Uh, Rich Miller, well said statement about volume of birds in the wild. Thanks for taking your time this evening and sharing your thoughts and experiences. Oh, no, that's, that's uh, Brian Miller. Sorry about that. See, that's why I need glasses because I absolutely can't see anything up close anymore. Michael Salerno wants to know, do you think turkeys have gotten smarter and harder to kill over the years due to hunting pressure and being educated by hunters? Well, I don't think it's necessarily what I would call smarter um, turkeys or turkeys, but I think they definitely uh, have learned experiences. And I think that uh, while I believe in God and not evolution, I believe turkeys evolve, animals evolve due to pressure. Absolutely, they do. Um, and yes, I do believe over the years turkeys have evolved into being a little tougher. They don't they don't gobble as much. I'll give you a little little tidbit of information. It's kind of funny you say that. <clears throat> Colonel Dave Harbor wrote two books. 
Uh, one was called the American Wild Turkey, and the other was called the American Wild Turkey and Records. Uh, I think that was back when they first started doing the record keeping for the NWTF. Um, and then the back of, I forget whichever one. Now, this was copyrighted in the 70s. I've got it downstairs in my library. Um, in the back of it, he states, In the year 2000, will turkeys gobble less frequent? Will they be much tougher to call and more difficult to make come to a call? Will hunters have a tougher time calling those turkeys in? This was a guy that had a book copyrighted in the 70s, was looking that far forward, if you will, to the fact that these turkeys were going to get tougher because hunting pressure was getting to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Yes, I fully feel that turkeys have gotten a little tougher. Uh, they've gotten a little wiser to just haphazard. And that all depends on where you're at and, and the amount of hunting pressure in that particular particular lo uh, locality. You know, you may be hunting a 5,000-acre place that, you know, one or two people ever hunt the place. Those turkeys don't have much pressure on them. They're not going to be any different than what, when they, what they were in the 70s or 80s. But the turkeys over on this public land, especially Mark Twain National Forest and places that Steve and I cut our teeth hunting, uh, by golly, they hear some things and see some things and it gets tough and you just have to, you have to learn to adapt your hunting and calling to it. Let's see here. Matt Gibbons, do you hunt any public ground and if so, what's your favorite way of locating them? First thing I do when I'm hunting public ground is I, I look for public ground if I can find it that has very hard access, meaning you have to walk a long way to get into good core areas. That be whether I'm deer hunting or turkey hunting. Um, and from there, it seems like to me, if you have places that is tough to get to, you'll find that a lot of your pressure is in that first mile, mile and a half. If you can get two and a half or three miles back, you're going to find turkeys that are much, much less molested. Now, locating them, I locate them the same way I do any other thing. I really prefer to use a locator call for the most part, such as a crow call. Uh, or, or an owl hooter, um, and the reason why is because a lot of times what those turkeys are used to hearing if they've been pushed back is somebody walking through there with a box call or a call, a slate call or a mouth call cutting and yelping trying to locate them. So going back to a standard locator call sometimes to me is, is key to making that turkey gobble. I also like a hawk call. A lot of times a hawk call is not used by people. Using calls that people don't use a lot is it can be key to, to striking a turkey. Another thing that another tip I'll give you about hunting public land that I've learned over the years is <clears throat> most hunting land pressure comes from Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. And so those turkeys are absolutely crazed out by the time Saturday gets there and have no intentions on doing anything. Sunday they are hiding in a hole, so to speak. Monday, they're starting to poke their head out a little bit. Tuesday, they may gobble a little bit. And Wednesday, they're looking for sherry. And so Wednesday and Thursday, if I'm going to hunt public land, I try to key in on during the, during the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday time periods when there's no pressure and those birds haven't been pressured in several days. And literally, you can walk into places that people have had 25 cars parked on Saturday and on Wednesday, go kill that gobbler because he's just unpressured at that point and he's back to being his normal self, Amen. if there's any normality to it. 
David Simonton wants to know, uh, evening, Chris and Steve, and hello from Mississippi. Hunted Mississippi and where? Well, I know Steve's hunted Mississippi uh, quite Major. a little bit, and, and I've hunted Mississippi as well. In fact, uh, I hunted Mississippi um, in the mid-90s uh, years ago and uh, enjoy hunting Mississippi. I know Mississippi went through quite a little deal with uh, uh, some turkey kill. Um, I guess it was a turkey pox or whatever got into some of the regions there, and, and there was a lot of kill off there, and it got to be pretty tough. And some of that was going on, I think, when I was hunting. But I enjoyed it. Loved hunting those big hardwood bottoms. Just, man, I tell you, I hunted some paper company where there was some cut over, but there was also some, some hardwood still there, those big hardwood drains. Uh, really enjoyed it. Fun fun hunting. Enjoy hunting Mississippi. You got an invite? I was near... Sorry. I was near... Crystal Springs is where I was, just so that you know. <clears throat> Steve Sparks uh, would like to invite you to his 12,000-acre lease that is loaded with birds in central Alabama, and he has his phone number on here. Write that phone number down. <laughs> and, Steve, I'm on Facebook. If you will friend me, if we're not friends, you can friend me and private message me. I would love to. I'm in Alabama a lot. Let's see here. Michael, let me get these glasses on again. So, so, uh, Salerno, Salerno, Michael Salerno. Do you think turkeys have gotten? Oh, that's the okay. one you already asked. I'm, yeah, I'm way behind. Kevin I'm far. Patrick wants to know. <clears throat> hello, Chris and Steve. Hi, Kevin. Do you think it is harder to win the Grand National Calling Contest now than it was 20 years ago, or do you think that it is still even ground once you reach that level in calling? Well. <laughs> Now, one thing you have to keep in mind, <clears throat> 20 years ago, you still had the same amount of really tough callers. And so with that being said, yes, it was as hard to win 20 years ago. In fact, many of the same callers winning today were calling 20 years ago. So, yes, it was just as hard to win. Maybe in some sense, a little bit harder, and I'll tell you why. Here's the deal. Back then, we had more callers in the preliminary round of the Grand Nationals, if I'm recalling right. Yes. And many times, we had 60 callers. Those 60 callers would be split up into two rooms, meaning 30 in one room and 30 in another room. You had to call to make the top six in one of those rooms and then move on to the big stage. So, in a lot of ways, it was tougher simply because there were more callers there was more chances of you not getting chosen, whether you called good or not. And um, I'm not going to say it was tougher. I'm, I'm going to retract that a little bit. It was just as tough due to the circumstances. And the calling, in my opinion, for the day and time was just as good. And I'll promise you, um, Walter Parrott sounded more like a turkey then than ever. And I think today... If he practiced and he got himself back to where he was when he quit calling, meaning stage comfortable and, and ready to roll, he could compete and win today. Um, Billy Yargis hasn't changed his calling in years. Still calls phenomenal. Gets out there and, and wins. Matt Van Syce, Shane Hendershot, um, Joe Drake still winning calling contest. I think that it's... Uh, oh, fat boy something. Uh, yeah. Old Steve still wins some contests. I think it's just a matter of uh, you have a lucky day and you have a non-lucky day. 
And I saw something from Rich Miller that says I'm supposed to be working Tuesdays and yeah. Tuesdays through Thursday. You know, our season ends at one o'clock. I get more work done between one and four than most people do all day. <laughs> all right. David Wax says, uh, "David Wax says sounds awesome and uh, a lot of a lot good, good info, information, sir." sir. George Thank Sloan you. says, "Hey, Chris, thanks for going live. Do you have a favorite turkey gun?" I do. I actually own several turkey guns that I love, but today my favorite turkey gun is a Browning Maxis, which I just equipped with a, a new Aimpoint red dot, and that son of a gun is absolutely spot on. I absolutely love it. Um, and the way gun turkey guns shoot today, and I shot a, a beaded sight for years uh, and tried to shoot a scope, and it just didn't work for me. I went to uh, an aim point. The aim point is phenomenal. I can shoot both eyes open. I can adjust the light. It makes me put that tight shooting choke when I'm shooting something up at 20 yards. I'm able to dial that in just like a rifle. Because let's face it, you know those those 20 yard targets they're a hole this big with a little residual around it. And uh, that's my favorite turkey gun today. It's lightweight, functions great. Um, I, that's that's my favorite turkey gun. Dave Constantine just joined. Hello, Dave, the greatest carver in the world. <laughs> Love you, Dave. Let's see here. Jordan Sloan. Hey, Chris. For go Oh, thanks for going live. Do you have... Hey, we just did that one. Great Let's advice. see. Eric, Eric Mayo. Great advice. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. Thank you, sir, for joining. David Simonton. Thanks for a great evening of insight and tips. God bless. Be safe. Good luck <clears> this spring. Now go eat. <laughs> I guess we're done. <laughs> well, it is 7.18, and time has absolutely flown. Guys, I absolutely appreciate your time and your questions, and I apologize if I didn't get to anything. But I tell you what I'm going to do on my Facebook page tomorrow because I didn't get the, I didn't get the, the tube call. I'm not going to do it tomorrow. I'll do it tonight. If you will... Okay, I've got three or four people talking about tube call. So, Steve, step over here. Show your ugly mug long enough for me to go get the two coffee. <laughs> it's me again. I'm the only one that's been on twice in one season. But I'm out here. We just filmed a, a safety, uh, a round of safety tips for uh, to cover from my fall uh, on November 5th. As you know, I fell out of a tree, limb snapped. Broke my back, my leg, and my rib. I'm recovered almost 100%. Go back to work in two weeks, so all is fine. So what we did is we went out to the tree that I actually fell at and filmed the limb that snapped. We filmed safety tips. We uh, Chris now has, a, of course, a tagline in the tree. But we wanted to do uh, just a, a strong message for my show, Buckman, um, for Season 3, um, about how important it is to be tagged in all the way up the tree and and all the way down. Always be tagged in. So that's what I'm out here doing right now. And just so happens Chris is on tonight. All and right. He's uh, just went to get a tube call, and he'll get back with you. I'm here. Right here. I made it. Picked it up. I used the new Nightingale tube call. We designed it a little bit longer with a slight flare instead of like the goose flare that we had on. And I use a medium piece of latex. Our calls come with a a heavier green, which is really suited great for, for gobbling. Um, 
but lighter one you can do it all on and I like to use my calls to cut and yelp on so um, we'll get a little bit of this going here so I have cuts in my tube call reeds to produce the rasp and you're basically just kind of there's a lot of different ways you can do it but it's kind of a I'm just kind of blowing into the tube call and making the, the sound. I'm going to cut a little bit and yelp. And gobble on it. You can Jake yelp on it. I wouldn't be caught in the turkey woods without a, uh, a tube call. It is an excellent call, and not a lot of people use them. So with, with that being said, I think it's a call if you have in your arsenal some of those turkeys that you can't strike or you can't uh, get to respond, a tube call can be the, can be the trick. All right. <clears throat> I think All right, guys. Questions, but we got to wrap it up, I think. There's more people joining, but we're at uh, 722. Uh, Scott, thanks for, for allowing me to uh, be a part of this. Uh, hopefully we can do this again. I think there's just a whole lot of things that we can do even added to this. So, uh, guys, have an awesome evening, and uh, God bless you, and uh, hopefully we'll see most of you at the Grand Nationals. Good uh, luck, safe hunting. Make sure you press... Um